2,000 and 20 years ago, history, talk about a, a life-changing, world-changing event. History changed forever uh, when Jesus entered this world. So much so that, that, that our calendar is even dated by that, right? B.C., before Christ, uh, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, from, from before and after his entrance into the world, uh, everything has been different. And every individual, like myself, who's ever come into contact with Christ, their lives have never been the same. Uh, when you meet Jesus, your life will never be the same. Either your life will be changed and you will be saved, or you will reject him and your life will never be the same as a result. But there is no doubt, those who have come into contact with Jesus Christ... Their lives have been changed forever, and we have the testimony of Scripture uh, to bear that out. We're looking at the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Who is he? His influence, more powerful than any other individual throughout the history of mankind. Um, but the question is, for us, for, for everyone, is who exactly is Jesus? If you look at uh, those who were around him when he was alive... His early contemporaries, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Um, for those who later in his ministry who wanted to oppose him, he was known as everything from uh, Beelzebub <laughs> to those who followed him as being truly the Son of God. I mean, that, that you, you, you name it, and, and he was probably called it during that time. There were, the, the opinions varied. Uh, since his death... And resurrection, historians have argued for centuries over who he is. Um, who exactly was Jesus Christ? The story of Jesus has fascinated some of our greatest minds. Was he truly the Son of God? Was he simply a prophet, as some said in his time and since then? The most important thing to know, though, is not what scholars think of Jesus, not what even his contemporaries thought of him. The most important thing is what does the Bible say about Christ? Who does the Bible say Jesus is? In this series on the doctrines of our faith, basic training, we're preparing to defend our faith. We're, we're understanding uh, what we believe, why we believe it. And we looked at the doctrine of God First, last week we looked at the doctrine of revelation uh, from which we drew the conclusion, rightly so, that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And if he is the full and final revelation of God, then we need to know something about the person of Jesus Christ and what that means for us in our lives. So we're going to look today first at the names of Jesus and, and discovering who Jesus is. And learning who he really is, we need to look at the names of Jesus. There's, there's more than at least 80 different names for who Jesus is. We're not going to look at all those today, all right? Take a deep breath, it's okay. But we are going to look at six that have great impact on us and our understanding of who Jesus is. Um, one is the name Jesus. I mean, that is one of the names for the Son of God, Jesus himself. And that name literally means Jehovah is salvation. It is a Hebrew, it is a form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And it means specifically Jehovah is salvation. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, Mary of course, and you are to name him Jesus because, why? 
Because of what it means. He will save the people from their sins. It is, that name's most frequently used in the Gospels. It's the Greek equivalent of the word uh, Joshua, as I said just a few minutes ago. And it, and it tells us his purpose for coming. His purpose is to save us from sin, to save mankind from sin. So within the name of Jesus is the understanding that his desire, his purpose was to save us from our sins. He is also called the Son of Man. This is one of, if not the most disputed name of Jesus, but it is, if you look through the Gospels, it seems to be his favorite name for himself. Uh, he calls himself the Son of Man repeatedly. Uh, he, he identifies himself as that. It seems to be based on Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. Now, this, this name in Daniel 7.13 tells us it originally stood for the exaltation of the Messiah, of, of, of the Son of God. So there is that idea of, of the exaltation. And, and, and part of the reason why it was understood, believed by the Jews in this day and time, that Jesus would come as a conquering ruler. Um, the, it emphasizes uh, the exaltation of the Messiah. But Jesus takes this, and this is, uh, as with much of what he does, all of what he does really, he, he takes it, and of course when Jesus impacts a person, and even a concept teaches something, a truth, uh, he, he changes us forever. And he did that with this name, the Son of Man, which was understood to be this exalted, conquering hero. He takes it and he applies humility to it, which shows us what his purpose. Yes, he is still going to be that conquering warrior, and he will come as such. And that is very much a part of who he is, but he is also very much a humble servant. He takes it and applies to it the, the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah. Um, so the Son of Man signifies Jesus' identity with man for man's redemption. It emphasizes his humanity, which we'll talk about in a few moments, but it's one of the great reasons that even in the midst of chaos, uncertainty, fear, that we can know that we have a Savior who knows us, who identifies with us, who is able to empathize with us. He is the Son of Man. He's also the Son of God. Just because He is man does not mean He is not fully God. Uh, we see this uh, name, Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. It enhances the deity of Christ. He, Jesus knew Himself. Yes, He's the Son of Man. He was human, but He knew Himself to be in a unique sense the Son of God. We are all sons and daughters of God, right? But in a unique sense, Jesus is, was, and is the Son of God. Some say that maybe he came to this realization in the temple at age 12. Some say it was later when he was baptized. But I, I believe that there was never a time where Jesus did not know exactly who he was, that he was the Son of God. He knew himself to be uniquely the Son of God. Um, and being the Son of God, it's obvious why he would say this in John 14, 9. Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? Philip asking, you know, 
show us the Father. Jesus says, have I been among you? And you don't even know who I am. Jesus knew who he was. He said, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He is and was and is the Son of God. But also, he's called the Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ. Christ, we are Christians. That is a name for Jesus. And, and it and is actually, I guess you could say, his official title, right? Um, and so... It's important to understand this is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. And the word Messiah means anointed one, specifically means anointed one. And we also see this in Peter's confession of faith, his amazing confession of faith. And so what Peter's essentially saying is, is that you are, you Jesus are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You're the promised one. You're the coming one, uh, the one whom God sent. I mean, you are the Messiah. That's what Peter is saying. And Jews, again, looking for this political Messiah, this conquering warrior, this hero, and, and we've seen the human aspect. We'll explore that a little more. And this title certainly recognizes his deity, that he is, he is that. He is, he is mighty. He is powerful. Uh, he was the anointed one of God. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of, of the devil, because God was with him. He was, is the anointed one of God, the one sent from God. He is also called Lord. Especially in this, in the biblical times, you know, the, it's, it's, Lord is the equivalent, and even today in, in English, it is the equivalent of, of sir. I mean, it is, it is a, an honorary type title, certainly, but um, in Jesus' day especially, it's basically when we see that uh, referenced, uh, it, is, it is basically being polite. It is calling someone sir with respect. But when we see after the resurrection, Beginning in John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus is identified from that point on, Lord begins to carry the meaning for Christ. Lord begins to carry the full meaning of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And so it is not just a polite, proper term. It carries the full meaning of who he is as God, as Jehovah. He and the Father are one. It has great significance um, he is the one who was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was master, ruler of life, Lord of all. That's From that point on, that's what Jesus is referred to. That is the meaning of his title as Lord. We see one of the earliest confessions of faith in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord... Not just sir, but master, potentate, ruler of all, master of all. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, what do we take from this? Well, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, for you to do that personally, is to acknowledge him as ruler of your life. Lord, you are master, ruler, savior of my life. You rule all. To say that Jesus is Lord is to summarize the heart of the New Testament faith. That Jesus is Lord of all. 
that he is the only way to be saved, that he is the only one who truly is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We actually have within our next name three different names, but we're going to count them as one. All right, that's how I do math. Prophet, priest, and king, because all are related um, and have great impact on us personally. Prophet, priest, and king. So prophet, when we, you know, Eusebius, the early church history, and prophet, priest, and king, he was the first one to really coin this, uh, to make this statement about Jesus and to put it in, in those terms. Uh, we see John Calvin develop it later, but, but it's, there's great significance in this title. Prophet, for one. Um, what it, who is a prophet? Well, a prophet is somebody that's sent from God with a message about God, plain and simple. And we see several prophets throughout Scripture. And while Jesus wasn't just a prophet, he was certainly a prophet, right? I mean, he de- definitely had a message about God. Each prophet, if you look through Scripture, and this would be a great study to do, personally, if you look through Scripture, uh, each prophet has a theme, every one of them. And Jesus had a theme as well. His theme is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. That, that's his theme. Um, and that's why he was here. Uh, Jesus' theme, Mark 1, 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. There's Jesus, his mission on earth, which is now our mission, by the way. He's left us to fulfill that now that he has risen and ascended into heaven. He was a preacher of the gospel, the kingdom of God. It entered with Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God did. You know, I've gotten that question before. When you, hear, when you see the kingdom of God in Scripture, what does that mean to you? Well, it means a couple of different things. It, it entered the kingdom of God with Jesus' entrance, his ministry, the beginning of his ministry, I believe, is when the, the kingdom of God entered into the world It continues today as he rules on the throne of our hearts, but there's also a future component to the kingdom of God. He will return again in victory, and he will rule with the saints for all time. Um, He will will annihilate evil for good once and for all, and he will rule on his throne for all of eternity. Um, That is the kingdom of God, and it it is his kingdom. Um, So he is a prophet. His theme is the kingdom of God. He is also priest. A priest, when we say priest, we look at the Old Testament definition of priest, it's one who offers the sacrifice and who intercedes for the people. Um, the priest would be the only one who could, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the inner part of the temple separated by the veil, by the curtain. He would go in, he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, and he was the, the line of communication between the people and God. And so what we see with Jesus is that the priest and the sacrifice become one. He is our high priest, and we don't have to depend on another high priest because he made the perfect sacrifice for our sins once and for all, and he continues to this day as our great high priest making intercession for us, which gives us great comfort and assurance. Think about it this way. All right, I've got a light switch here this morning. All right. How many of you this morning flipped on a light switch at some point? I mean, most of you, if it wasn't already on, you flipped on a light switch. How many times a day do you flip on a light switch in your house, at your office? I mean, think about it. How many times do you do it? 
Do you ever, maybe you do this from time to time, probably not though, how many times do you stand, how many times do you stand there before you flip the switch and go, oh, I sure hope the light turns on. What if it doesn't turn on? I mean, how, how, how much thought do you, you, I don't think about it unless I flip it on and the bulb blows. Then I think, well, man, I wish that would have worked. Now I got to change the bulb. But we don't do that, right? I mean, we just, there are some things in life that we just accept by faith. That when I flip this switch, that the light is going to come on. Now, there's nothing about this switch that powers the light, right? It is what allows the power that is in another place to come through the wiring into this switch, and then the switch allows the power to go to the light and turn it on. Well, that is faith. I mean, it isn't our faith that has power in the sense that it accomplishes things, but it is faith that gains us access to God's power. And so... What's the switch in our lives that gains us access to the power of God? It's prayer. And here's the promise, and here's where this ties in. When I go and I flip the switch in faith and I pray, it goes through the great intercessor to God Almighty, and the power of God is now working in and through my life. It is faith. It's trust. That God truly is who he says he is, and that Jesus truly is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. So when I am troubled, when life is confusing, when people are sick, when I don't know what's coming, I don't have to be afraid. All I have to do is flip the switch and trust that God is in control. And I've said this, and I'm going to say it a million times, none of this has taken God by surprise, folks. Thursday, it seemed like the whole world was coming unglued. And all of a sudden, I, my day was all about the coronavirus and what we were going to do this weekend and what I needed to do to make sure we were communicating with you and everybody was safe, everybody was on the same page. I, about 1 o'clock Thursday afternoon, thought I had no idea my day was going to be about this today. Had no clue. I was totally shocked. You know, we've been making preparations here and there, but I don't think anybody knew that it was going to explode the way that it did Thursday. But in, in it all and through it all, I knew that everything was going to be okay because while I was surprised, God was not. And so I went and I flipped the switch and said, Lord, you know what you're doing. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what we're going to have to do. We're going to make plans that are going to change 20 times before we actually get to Sunday morning. But you are in control. One of the great things about Jesus as our priest is that no matter what's going on in life, what we're facing, we can always, regardless of where we are and what we're doing, we can always go and we can trust in him. We can go and we can talk to him knowing that he hears our prayers, that he is in complete control. While we may be in shock, he is not, and he knows exactly what we need. And through prayer, he will communicate with us. And through our faith, by trusting in him, his power goes to work in our lives. And we don't have to depend on ourselves or anybody else for that matter to take care of our needs. Power, the power of God. He is our great intercessor. So we trust in him. That's one of the, the great 
the great significant impacts on our lives that comes as a result of Jesus being our priest. But he is also king. And the king, of course, is one who rules, reigns, and dominates. And that is certainly a part of who Jesus is. It's closely associated with the the name Lord that I just mentioned. Look at 1 Timothy 6.15. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. When we hear Jesus speaking with authority, like Matthew 7, 29, and and he claims the right to exercise supreme power in our lives, over our lives, like in Luke 14, 33, we see evidences of his kingship and his lordship, and that's past and present. We see that in the past, but we experience that in in the present, right, as he rules over our lives. He is king over our lives if we submit to him and We see, though, in a sense, in in coming, we know there's a future component to that. Um, As Reinhold Niebuhr says, history is going to have a worthy conclusion. We're not done yet. Regardless of what's going on in life and regardless of chaos or anything else that disrupts our lives, we know that history is going toward a a full and final conclusion. And, and one of the reasons we can have comfort in the midst of chaos is because we know what that conclusion is going to be. We know that regardless of what happens, that one day history is going to reach its climax when the heavens part and Jesus steps forward with the sound of a trumpet and calls us home to be with him. So regardless of what life brings, even if it's death, we don't have to be afraid because Jesus says, hey... I've already taken care of that. And and nothing in life, yes, we should be concerned. Yes, we should take appropriate measures. I don't know that you need to buy all the toilet paper and hand sanitizer, but yes, we need to take appropriate measures. But we don't have to live in fear. We don't have anything to be afraid of. Our king is still on his throne. And he is in complete control. And one day... We will be in a place where we don't have to worry about this virus or any other virus. We will be free and well and who we were intended to be for all of eternity. He is the prophet, priest, and he is our king, and he is in complete control. We've looked at his names. Now let's look at his nature, which tell us something else about who he is. There are four elements of the nature of Christ. There is his preexistence. Again, man, what, a, what an amazing, I, I, as I was studying, uh, especially this weekend, just going over and over and over this, um, I just, I, I kept being incredibly impressed. God just impressed my heart with the fact that, you know, this is all my life is about right now, right? I mean, this is, it's impacting everything. But this is just a little, a little blip in time. I mean, God has always been. How many plagues has he seen come and go? Not that this is a plague, don't worry. All right, we're not, no fear, no panic. How many sicknesses has he seen? How many wars has he seen come and go? How, how many, just the events in my lifetime alone. Last night's dinner conversation went from, hey kids, you're going to remember this, to 9-11, the greatest, most traumatic event I've experienced in my life. I remember everything about that day. But God was on his throne then. He was on his throne at Pearl Harbor. He was on his throne long before that, and he will always be. I mean, he is eternal. 
what rocks our whole world, you know, in a sense, God's saying, hey, I've been there and done that. Just trust me. Calm down. Take a deep breath. Flip the switch. Trust in me, and I'll provide. He's eternal, pre-existence. He was in the beginning with the Father. Let's look at a few verses. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 8.58, Jesus said, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he's God. We know that. John 17.5, now Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. And that was one of the verses, that, and I've read that, I don't know how many times, but that was just one of the verses that just jumped off the page, bold, highlighted, just impacted me in an incredible way. Glorify, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world even existed, before we were here, before anything we see was here, God was God. He was on his throne. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form. Why use that verse? Well, he didn't come into existence when he was born. He was already. He chose to take the form of a man. There was never a time... When Jesus was not, ever, nor will there ever be. He is eternal, preexistent. Also, we see his incarnation. We see within the nature of Christ, the incarnation, which teaches us something about him. The word incarnate literally means in the flesh. That's, That's the literal meaning of the word incarnate. So Jesus, who is eternal and preexisting, the eternal and preexisting God, The Word of God, He became flesh, entered humanity. He became flesh in the act of the incarnation. Jesus is God's self-revelation. He is the full and final revelation of God. He is God's self-revelation in human flesh. The testimony of Scriptures, John 1.14, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was in the flesh, in the world. God's reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God in human form, in the flesh. So the incarnation, when we're talking about Jesus, literally means that Jesus is not just in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is fully human, but he is fully God. He is God in the flesh. It means both his divinity, he is divine, and both his humanity, he is human. Both of those are emphasized. He was just as much God as if he were not man, and just as much man as if he were not God, yet somehow he was both. And, you know, if you can explain that completely, come talk to me, we'll write a book and make a million dollars. It's like the Trinity. You can't, you can't, we can't comprehend it, but it's true. Fully God, fully man. We can understand a lot about it, but there's still mystery in that, that he could do that. But he did. Jesus was fully the God-man. Also, we see, though, his humanity. He was fully human. 
a real live human being. He's made in the likeness of man. He was born of a woman. He grew up in wisdom and stature. He grew in wisdom and stature. He was tempted. He ate. He slept. He drank. He wept. He prayed. All that we experience. And this is what it is meant by his humanity. A lot of times people will emphasize his humanity to the point to where they sacrifice his deity. I mean, the first heresy of the church was, uh, was not a denial. It was docetism. It was not a denial of his divinity that he was God. It was a denial of his humanity that he wasn't really man because we can't understand how he can be both. So there's, it goes both ways. There's a tendency to emphasize his humanity at the sacrifice of his deity. There's also the, the tendency to emphasize his deity at, at the expense of his humanity. But there's both. He is fully God, yet fully man. We see in the Bible, John's writings, two writings, his, John, his gospel and the first epistle. They both emphasize strongly his deity and his humanity. In 1 John 1, in the Gospel of John 1, we see Jesus growing, we see him tired, we see him hungry, we see him thirsty. In John, 1 John 1, the writer looks at Jesus as the word of life, as having seen, held, heard, behold, beheld. I mean, all of it, we see both emphasized by John, someone who knew Jesus pretty well. He identified himself with humanity, yet he is without sin. And if you look at the testimony about Jesus, even those who were opposed to him, none could bring a charge of sin against him. Both those who knew him well, those who were against him, the, the, the irrevocable testimony is that Jesus was without sin. He was fully human, yet he lived without sin, which is what makes him such a great high priest for us. He knows where we are. He knows what we're going through. He's, he's experienced it. The pain and suffering of life on earth, temptation, you know, what it means to be hungry, what it means to be, you know, concerned, what it means to be uncertain, uh, at least in a sense. He knows what, what, what that's like, what the chaos of, of living on this planet is like, um, He's seen it firsthand. He, he knows pain and suffering more than any of us. I mean, he, he's been here and he's done it, yet he responded without sinning, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. And so it is that which made him the perfect sacrifice. So now when we come to Christ with our cares and our concerns and all of those things, it's not that we're coming to a God who's distant and is just he's willing to listen, but he doesn't, he doesn't know what we're going through. No. He knows exactly what we're going through, yet because he lived without sin and made the perfect sacrifice, he can provide us with rescue from whatever we're going through. Ultimately, he provides us eternal rescue from sin. Uh, he is the great high priest, and he knows. He can empathize. He's been here. He's experienced it. He was able to live life and all of its infirmities without sinning. Let's look at his, his, we've looked at his humanity, let's look at his deity, because that naturally follows. He never ceased, even though he was fully human, he never ceased to be divine. He did give up some of his divine attributes, certainly. I mean, he couldn't be omnipresent while he was in human form. Um, he evidently gave up some of his, his 
uh, foreknowledge, right, um, while he was human, but he was still fully divine. He never ceases to be divine. Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. He was still fully God somehow in the miracle of him being God and man. From his miraculous birth to his glorious ascension back to heaven, the divine and supernatural element is always elevant, uh, always present, evident in Christ. So the divinity, we see the humanity of God, we see the divinity of God. And in two ways, this is highlighted, all right? One is in his birth, he is supernatural in birth, and, and it's not, not supernatural in the way he was born. He was, I mean, he was born with all the pain and suffering of childbirth. All of that was present in his birth, but he was, he was supernatural in the way he was conceived, It was supernatural in that nine months before that childbirth, Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he was supernatural in his birth. We also see it in his life. He was supernatural in life. Jesus' deity is probably seen in the Gospel of John more than any other place. And I have to believe one of the reasons was because um, he was so close to Jesus. I mean, he saw firsthand um, what Jesus was really like. And so we see it in his words, what he says, we see it in his works. And so if you look on the back of your notes, I've just gotten written for you to take with you the seven uh, I am sayings and the seven signs of Jesus. Let's walk through these quickly. It tells us a lot about his deity, and you can take these and, and again, use these for study later. Great thing to do in the midst of everything that's going on. Um, the seven I am sayings, they indicate his deity. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he provides our greatest need. He is the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness. Where Jesus is, he dispels darkness. He exposes sin. I am the door. I mean, if you want to get to God, I mean, he is the door. He is the way that we get to, to, the, to the Father. I am the good shepherd. And he is the greatest shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he provides victory over death, right? If you want life, it's through him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father except by me. I mean, he is the way to the Father. There is no other way to be saved. I'm the true vine. All of these things No one except the divine Son of God could claim these things. Either he is who he says he was, or he was crazy or a liar. Because he's claiming to be God. These are the I am sayings. I am in and of itself is reference to him being God, calling himself that. Then there are the seven signs in John that reveal his deity. Turning water into wine. The healing of the nobleman's son in John 4. The healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath in John 5. And he redefines the Sabbath. The Sabbath is still in effect, but he applies new meaning to it, new significance to it. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. The walking on the sea in John chapter 6. The restoration of sight to the man who's blind from birth, John chapter 9. And of course, raising the raising of Lazarus from the dead, proving that he was um, the giver, the author 
over life, the ruler over life. We see the power of Christ to create, to heal, to control nature, to restore sight, to raise the dead. Is there any doubt, should there be any doubt, that he can control what's going on in our lives right now? Time and time and time and time again, through his words and through his actions, he proves that he is God and that he is in control. John chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus confessed, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. Even to the unbeliever, which Nicodemus was at the time, who came into contact with Christ, there was no mistaking that he was no ordinary man, that he was from God. And each sign, there is positive, comforting evidence that he is truly God. He is also supernatural in his death. Matthew 20 and 20, verse 28, Jesus states that the purpose in his, his coming was to live his life as a ransom, to give his life as a ransom for the lost. A lot of people have died noble deaths. History is filled with those stories, those accounts, but none greater than Jesus. No one has ever voluntarily died a sinless death on the cross for the sins of others, which is exactly what he did. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to you, bring to God after being put to death, bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. So rather than submit to sin, he submitted to death on the cross as a ransom for our sins. He is also supernatural in his resurrection. And if this is, of course, the, the climactic sign of Jesus' deity. This is where it all, nothing, our faith means nothing without the resurrection. But we have Jesus who died a sinless death, took on the sins of all of ours. He didn't sin himself, but he took on our sins. He died as a ransom for our sins, paid the price, the penalty for our sins. But he arose three days later to defeat sin and death. He's alive. He was supernatural in life. He was supernatural in death. And he's supernatural in the resurrection. The scriptural accounts, his appearances, the preaching of the apostles, the existence of the church today, all are infallible proofs of Jesus that he is alive and that he was raised from the dead. This further supports his deity, and it all can be summed up. The Christian faith either stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. Without resurrection, there is no Christian faith. There is no victory over death, but with it, there is victory, and there's no reason to fear. I want you to think of, of fear as this candle, specifically the flame of this candle. If I light this candle, the fire is contained right here, right? And fire can be a great thing when it is contained. It can be used for wonderful things. But the moment I knock this candle over, which I'm not going to do, but if I did and something catches on fire, it can quickly get out of control, can it? And fear is like that. And we've seen some of that this week. You know, fear can get out of control in a hurry. Look at the wildfires in California. Every year there are wildfires, and, and when they get out of control, it causes chaos. It causes a lot of hurt. People lose a lot, a lot of stuff. Some lose their lives. 
the fire in Gatlinburg just a few years ago. I mean, you, the examples of how the destruction that can be caused when fire is not controlled. Well, fear, if it's not brought under control, can cause great destruction in our lives. It can cause chaos. It can cause hurt. It can cause suffering. It can cause a lack of peace, a lack of contentment, all of those things. So if I left this candle burning, eventually there's a good chance that it would catch something on fire. But what do I need to do in order to keep that from happening? Very simple, just snuff it out. That's what the resurrection did to our fear. Because think about it. Why is everybody afraid of sickness, ultimately? Afraid of death. Let's be honest, okay? There's no reason to, to, to not talk about it. I mean, that's ultimately what everybody's afraid of, right? Which creates fear. It creates panic. If left unchecked, if you don't snuff it out, creates panic, creates actions that I normally wouldn't do, which contributes to chaos, which can contribute to further pain, further suffering than there has to be. So unless you snuff it out at the beginning... Fear can run rampant. Well, Jesus' resurrection snuffed out our greatest fear. I I heard my pastor say growing up, and I believe it, and I feel this way now, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of, you know, I'm concerned about how I'm going to die, but I'm not afraid of dying. Nothing in this world has to have a halt on us to the point to where it makes us incapable of doing what God has called us to do. I referenced it in one of my messages, and I, I'm going to read it again. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. We don't have to live in fear. We need to be smart. I've covered that, and we're going to do that. We're, this may be the last time we meet together for a few weeks. We're going to take every precaution that we can to make sure everybody's safe and healthy. All right? We're going to be cautious. We're going to be smart. We're going to use the wisdom that God gives us. We're going to use the brains that he gave us. But we're not going to live in fear. We're not going to allow it to cripple us. And we're certainly not going to allow Satan to use this to force us to stop being the church. Being inside this building is not what determines whether or not we are the church. The church has nothing to do with this building. It's where we gather. It's a special place. But the church are the people inside the church are the people that make up that church that organization the church is jesus living in and through us and so we're going to continue to be the church regardless of whether or not we're meeting in this room and we're not going to be driven by fear examining all of the names of jesus looking at all of the evidence all of what it means we can say with confidence that jesus is the savior of sinners And he is. He has rescued us from sin and death. So the the real question here is not who I say Jesus is. It's not who those who knew him say he is. It's who do you say he is? Who is he to you? I don't know what exactly is coming in the next couple of weeks, all right? I don't know um, what this gathering is going to look like. I I will tell you that uh, tomorrow morning that the staff and I, we're going to sit down. And we're going to make plans for the, the, the weeks ahead. There's a good possibility that we won't meet together like this for a few weeks. I think that after Wednesday, I think that's, that's going to be a given. 
We're going to make sure that we have the capability for our church to, to participate in worship. It will probably be streaming. We're streaming the sermon today. Um, we're going to do whatever we need to to be able to stream music as well in the weeks coming. Um, we're going to make sure that we have a way for you to, to, to give online, to, to participate, and to give your tithes and offerings. Um, all of those things. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work out all those plans, and I'm going to continue to communicate with you, all right? If you're not signed up on Flock Notes, sign up today. Be on Facebook. Look for, for my communication. We're going we're gonna to continue to, to do what we've been called to do. And, and let, me, let me just emphasize here that, that, again, because we may not be here, doesn't mean that the ministry of the church needs to stop. This is a great opportunity for us as God's people to be the church in our communities. Check on your neighbors. Call your neighbors. Go see your neighbors. Share your toilet paper with your neighbors. (laughs) If you find out somebody has a need, meet that need if you can. We're still going to be up here at the church office every day. Um, your deacon of the week is going to be on call. The staff, we're, going to be, we're still going to be doing ministry. If you find out somebody has a need that you can't meet, call us. We, we will organize a way to meet that need. I mean, this gives us a tremendous opportunity to reach out to the people around us, to be Jesus, to, to declare the name of Jesus, to be his ambassadors to the people in our lives. And so we're going to do that. If nothing else... We may impact our community in a way that we never could have without this happening. So we're going to continue to be the church. We're going to be smart. We're going to be safe. We're going to continue to worship on Sunday morning in one, one form or another. Maybe electronically. You may be gathering with your family around the computer screen and worshiping together. Man, I mean, that's, that's New Testament, right? House to house to house, right? I mean, we're going to, we're going to continue to do church. We're going to continue to function. And we're all going to be okay because we're all going to rest in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's promised to do for us, to sustain us in this life and to rescue us from this life one day when he comes back. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now during this time and and it is a unique time. It is a time unlike any that any of us have ever faced. And we come before you humbling ourselves in your presence. We recognize that none of us have the wisdom, the power, the ability to manage what's going on. But we can turn to you in faith and trust in you for guidance and for direction. We can believe that you are who you say you are, that Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you are securely on your throne and completely in control. We can rest in the knowledge that you have promised never to leave us or forsake us. That you have given us victory over life, victory over sin, and victory over death. And so we are going to trust in you from day to day. We are not going to live in fear. We are going to continue to be your hands and feet to the world around us. Lord, help us to look at our world through your eyes and to see the people around us the same way that you do. Help us to see needs and to be willing to meet those needs. Help us to be the church outside the walls of this building as we are called to do. We should always be that. And Lord, I pray that each day 
that we would come to you and trust you with our lives, with our family's lives, that each day we would submit to your plan, understanding that you do have a plan, that you are in control, and that you will fulfill your plan, that that this, this sickness, this temporary discomfort, that none of this is your final plan for any of us. Your final plan for us is to see you face to face where there is no sickness, there is no death, there is no suffering, there is no sin, there is perfection, there is glory, and there is worship in your presence for all of eternity. God, we trust in you. We place our lives in your hands and we ask that you display your power and your faithfulness in ways that we have never seen. We expect you to work. We trust you to work because you have promised to work. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to ask you to stand. We are going to have a time of decision.